we have a really good number of folks present this morning. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting, we're especially thankful for you being here, and I hope we make you feel welcome, and you'll want to come back and be with us at every opportunity you have. Um, and if there's any way in which we can help you, if you have any questions or anything like that, please feel free to ask. We are talking about the idea of being holy in my weakness, as you can tell above me. And I'm looking at a whole process, so to speak. Uh, probably won't use this word very much. But the process of sanctification, but I like to call it holification, because sanctification has a number of different connotations. And we are talking about the idea of the process of becoming more and more and more holy uh, as we progress in our lives. One of the things that we have to face and we have to deal with if we're going to become more holy, if we're going to, to quote Paul, perfect our holiness in the fear of God, we're going to have to deal with the spirit within us. There is a spirit within us. In fact, sometimes there is as many as three spirits within us working in us at any given time. Um, there may be our own personal spirit and the weaknesses that we have and that we have to face. There certainly is the devil, Satan, as Tyler just read this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll come back to that in a moment. There certainly is the devil working within us, and we hope that the Holy Spirit is also working within us to assist us and to help us and uh, certainly the word that he has delivered, that that as well is vibrant and alive within us to help us to overcome maybe these opposing spirits that we deal with. Let's get more into that. As we talk about this whole idea, go with me, if you will, go back to this passage Tyler just read, and notice in Ephesians 2 that Paul opens up with this idea that you were dead, as it were, in trespasses and sin. Spiritually speaking, you were dead. All death means is a separation, and you were separated from God. And you were because the devil is alive and well. And I think we all understand that. That he is someone who stalks people, all people on the earth. That he stalks us seeking whom he can devour, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. That he gets within us, that is, within our minds, he works on our minds, he distracts us, he leads us astray, and if we allow him to, he works in an ongoing sense, as you see at the end of verse 2, he works in us. And we become children of disobedience, as it were. We disobey God. We are people who do not follow what's good, we do not do what's right, we know that, we understand that, we want to do better, but we have all of these passions, temptations, and so forth, we're going to talk about that, working within us, working against us, and Satan fuels that. And so verse 3, as it becomes, we live a manner of life, our conversation, the King James says, our way of life. And Paul addresses these Christians at Ephesus and he says, there was a time when that's the only way you lived. Like everybody else, you followed the course of the world. You fulfilled what you wanted to do. If you wanted it, you did it. And you fulfilled the desires, as he puts it here, or the lust of the flesh and of the mind. And so you became by nature. It became your nature to just simply follow this course of the world. And you became not only a child of disobedience, but a child of wrath. 
Now, you'll notice in verses 4 and 5, he goes on to say, but. And thankfully, there is a huge but here. But God, who was and is rich in mercy, and for his great love wherewith he loved us. Notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, he has made us alive. He's made us alive together in Christ. By grace are you saved. When you look at this passage in Ephesians 2, you recognize, together with other passages, and one that I'm going to really focus on this morning in James chapter 4, you recognize it does reflect this spirit that is within us. Now understand, I'm not so much talking this morning about the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, though the Holy Spirit may be within you. I'm not going to talk about even Satan. Not this morning so much. Oh, I'm going to talk about the work of Satan. I'm going to talk about what Satan does to us. But I'm going to save the lesson where I really talk about dealing with Satan, the spirit of Satan, for a a lesson in in, in a couple of weeks from now, a few weeks from now. No, I'm talking more of the spirit that is our spirit within us. That is the spirit, our nature, it can even become. In other words... The human passions, the human desires, etc., etc., the lust of the flesh and of the mind that Paul spoke of and speaks of in Ephesians 2. I'm talking about all of that culminating in a way of life, a conversation, a manner of life, even a nature as it were, so that you do things that you do really by reflex, by normal course of reflex. That there are certain things that set you off and set you in a direction that maybe in your best of times, perhaps this morning, you don't want to go. You don't want to be like that. You don't want to live like that. You don't want to do the things you do, but you do them. And so I want to talk a little bit about that spirit within us. Go with me, if you will, to James 4. Now, this is going to be an easy lesson to follow along, because I'm going to stay right here. I'll veer away two or three times to another passage, but you can hold your finger here the whole time, because I'll come back right back to it. This is a passage that really reflects... And and I'm not going to talk much about the man in the mirror, but the reflection I see when I'm honest with myself, this is a passage that makes me face who that guy really is in that mirror. It makes me look at myself and look at what is driving me, the spirit within me. So I want to start in verse 1. And notice how James begins this passage. Now, if I had time today, I'd go back to the end of chapter 3 especially and set this up, because this grows out of what he has said in chapter 3. But I'll save that. Notice chapter 4. He just asked the question, Where do wars and fightings come from that are among you? When we look around us and we see all of the trouble within us, all of the trouble in our lives, I meant to say, where does all of that come from? The wars and the fightings. He says, Do they not come from here... And he says, even your lust that wore in your members. Now, this is an interesting passage. You might want to make a note of this somewhere, or at least jot it down in your memory. Go home and check me on this, because it's a very interesting passage. And if you'll notice up here, by the word lust, I've got a little one. That's because there are no less, in these five verses, there are no less than six different terms for desire, want, intense terms for crave. They're just piled up. And I always find it interesting 
that when God piles up terms in a short amount of space, that there's a point being driven home. We are people of desire. We won't. And I think you can look at any human being, you can look at a baby. You know, I think Edward and Hannah will probably have a baby born this week in the next couple of days, and uh, all things being equal. And uh, from the beginning, that child, even the youngest of children that are here today, want. And one of the things that we start off learning, or a human being starts off by doing, is expressing their desire. I want, I crave, I need. They cry. They cry for attention. They cry for food. They cry for everything they want. And the older they get, they become even more wanting, desirous. And so James piles these terms together. The first one occurs in verse 1 when he says, Your lust. But this isn't the normal word for lust. It's not the word you see back in Ephesians 2. No, this word for lust is the word from which we get hedonism. And so if we talk about hedonism or hedonistic behavior and all of that, I think we all understand that. Most of the adults, at least, understand what hedonism is. And that just overabundance of pleasure and the desire and want for pleasure of all kinds that drives us. That's what James said. Now notice again what he says here. Fights and quarrels. Strifes in your life. That is all of the kinds of things where you just have trouble with people. And even outright wars in your life. Where do they come from? Where does all of that derive from? And he says, don't they come from your lust, your hedonistic passion? In fact, I want you to notice how both words are used over in Titus chapter 3. When Titus talks about this, or when Paul talks about it in Titus, and in verse 3 when he says, We ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving, notice various lust, there's your normal word, and, uh, he says, and pleasures. almost forgot what the King James said there. But lust and pleasures, there's your hedonistic passions. We did that, and so... We became people who were disobedient. We we became people who were driven by that and what it ends up doing naturally. If you live for pleasure and you serve yourself in that, you're going to have trouble with other people. Your relationships are going to break down. All relationships, no matter how close they are, they're going to break down because of that. And so Paul is saying and James is saying and the Bible is saying Where does trouble, drama in your life come from? Doesn't it fall back on you and these hedonistic passions within you? Now let's go further with what he says in verse 2. You lust. You'll notice I have a little two here. Different word. You lust. That is, you strongly desire. Different word. But you don't have. Now what he's saying here is, you've got all of this trouble, all of this drama. Do you want it? Most people say no. In fact, people talk about drama. People get together at coffee shops at Starbucks and they talk about drama. They go out to eat, they talk about drama. They get on talk shows, they talk about drama. And they don't want it. But they have it. You lust, you want something else. You strongly desire something else, but you don't have it. Why? Notice what he goes on to say. Because, he says, you kill. Now, this is a word... That can be either literally, where you kill somebody, you know, you shoot them in the head, kill them. Or you kill them in a figurative way. 
Go over with me for a moment. Hold your finger here. But go over with me to Galatians chapter 5 and notice what he says. Now, this is typical behavior. In Galatians 5, and start reading with me. And again, remember that this is where Paul is talking about how free Christians are. So he comes to a point in Galatians 5, and I'm just going to jump in in verse 13, when he says, For brethren, you have been called unto freedom, liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now think about that for a moment. You can apply that to any arena. Apply it to our nation. We have many freedoms in this country, don't we? We, we are a free people. And as a Compared to many other nations, we love our freedom, we want our freedom, we demand our freedom, and yet what do we do with it? We look around us and we see people every day, all day, taking the freedom, and rather than being responsible to other people, and using it to serve one another, no, they use it to appease themselves. I want, I want, I want, and I'm free, and I will have it. And I'll have it no matter the consequences it brings to you. Paul said, don't use your freedom that way. Notice verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love people. Love them like you love yourself. Use the freedom you have. Now notice verse 15. But... If you bite and devour, eat up each other. Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. I can't tell you the number of studies that are being done right now on our nation in regard to our freedoms and what it's doing to us as a people. We are consuming ourselves. We're eating ourselves alive while we demand and speak of freedom. And when we go back to James chapter 4, let's look at it. James says you lust. You really want something different than all the drama you have, but you don't have it because you kill for that over which, notice another word still, over which you envy but cannot obtain. Now think about what he's saying here. You want something better. But what do you do? What you do is, based on your hedonism, based on your love of pleasuring yourself, you consume, you eat up everything around you. That's what you do. You kill everything in your life. You're jealous of people who have better. It drives you. It's in there. You want it. You look over at someone else who has a good life, and you want that. If they have a good relationship with their spouse or a good relationship with their children, you want that. But rather than fight for that, demand that, crave that, and notice even another word, a fourth word yet again, at the end of verse 2, rather than crave it, demand it, beg it of God, and seek about to make it happen in your life, you just keep falling back on your pleasure. To summarize, I believe this, this is what these two verses are saying. You don't have what you want in life. I think most people would say, that's right. I don't have what I want in life. I am not happy. Life is not where I want it to be. You don't have what you want in life because you don't require it of yourselves. Person says, well, yeah, I do. I demand that it be that way or I won't be happy. That's not what he's saying. 
Notice at the end of verse 2, you don't ask. Ask who? You don't ask God. You don't crave it. You don't require it of God. Because if you did, you would go to God first and you would operate from the standpoint of what does God say? How can God make me happy? And you would do that. But you don't. So what you don't have is what you're jealous of that a few people have. Your marriage is not what it wants to be. And you look at other people and you see them have a good marriage. Then go find out why they have a good marriage. And if you want a good marriage, do what they do. And the same goes with your children, with everything in life. No, you don't have what you want because you don't demand it. You don't require it of yourselves. Your life is filled with problems, drama we call it, because that reflects what is in you. Now go with me to the next verse, because it's powerful in verse 3. When you ask, and notice he just said you don't ask. But a person says, oh, but I do pray. Right? I do pray for it. I pray about my relationships. I pray about my family. I pray about my job. I pray about my friends. I pray about everything. I do ask. Notice what James says. You ask, but you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives. In verse 3 he says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. You ask with the wrong motives, and he goes on to tell you what the wrong motives are, that you may consume it upon your lust, and the word there for lust is the first one he started with. Now think about what he's saying. You pray, God, I want a good marriage. Maybe, God, I want someone to marry. God, I want children. God, I want friends. God, I want a good job. God, I want this. I want that. We are very desirous, wanting people. And God has told us, let your request be made known to God. Philippians 4, verse 6. So we have a right as a Christian to pray. But James says you ask, and God doesn't say yes. Why? Because God looks into your heart and says you're asking with the wrong motive. You're asking for the wrong reason that you may notice. Consume. This word for consume literally means to waste. And God is saying, if I gave it to you, you would just waste it. You want a husband. You want a wife. What will you do with that? Will you come to me, seek what I say, give everything you've got to be the best husband, the best wife to this spouse I give you? Or will you just waste that? Same with children, same with jobs, same with friends, same with church, same with everything. I don't give it to you because I look at you as someone who could do better. But right now you're asking and your motives are all wrong. You just want to waste it. And God says no. Because whatever is given to us is given for holy use, not heat. If God gave me a wife, I thank Him He did. If He gave me a wife, He means for my relationship to be a holy relationship. A holy marriage. What does that mean? Different. When I look around me and I see the marriages that are in the world, I see the relationships that exist between husbands and wives, do I want that? Do you? If you 
live in a family or live in a place, and we all have in this day and time, where all you see out of marriage is fighting and fussing and divorce and remarriage and go through the same old thing again. Is that what you want? The answer is, of course, no. I want it to be wholly different. And I don't want a marriage, I don't want a wife just to satisfy some hedonistic passion for pleasure within me. If that's the only reason I want, I should be praying to God and saying, God, if that's what's inside me and you know, then don't grant me that. Because I don't want to waste a great opportunity for a great marriage. Whatever's given to us is given for holy use. It's to be used for God. Yes, even marriage and children and jobs. For God and for good. Rather than to be used up or wasted in selfish pleasure. And I'm not going to turn back to Deuteronomy 6, but you should go home and read Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Both passages. Where God says to the people, and I'll summarize, I'm bringing you into a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a land that's got cities already built It's got crops already planted, vineyards that are abundant. I'm giving you a beautiful place with everything you could ever want. Only when you get in there, don't forget me. Because if you forget me and you start turning to other things, I'm going to take it away from you. And that's where most of us, and when I say us, I mean in our society, Most people in our society, that's where they are. They're just losing all the time. Grabbing to hold on to, but losing. And it's because of the way they're approaching what they've been given. And you know, we might look at not lands and crops and vineyards and all of that, towers and wells, but God has given us brothers and sisters. Look around you. We are not three or four people meeting and trying to stay, keep this church going. Places nearly filled today. He's given us brothers and sisters, and He's given us friends and best friends, and He's given us boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and children and parents and jobs and paychecks, and it goes on and on and on. God has given all of those things. And I should be thankful to God and I should be saying, how can I use my brothers, sisters, friends, best friends, husbands, wives, children, jobs, paycheck? How can I use that for you, God? And what can I do so that I do? I use it for good, not just for me and what I want, I want, I want, but how can I give? We call it giving back. How can I do that, God? Because you see what James is saying is when you ask, you don't receive because you intend to waste it. And God does not mean for you to waste it in hedonism. Hedonism is just the belief that pleasure is everything. It's the chief goal. The chief good in life is just to be pleasured. If it feels good, it's the most important thing. You owe it to yourself. You know what I mean? God says, no, you owe it to me. That's who you owe it to. If I'm going to bless you with what you really, really want, then you owe giving it back to me. That's your purpose in life, as we talked about last year. Now let's go to verse 4, because he gets very hard here. You adulterers and adulteresses, he says. Notice this. Be not... uh, No, lost it. Verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not 
The friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Notice what he's saying. Don't you know, is the way it literally is asked in the original, don't you know that friendship, now this word friendship is a word for love or affinity or affection. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostile toward God? Don't you know that? What does that mean? Well, what it really means is this. Whoever loves the world, that is, I love how people live. I love what people do. I want to be in there doing all. It looks like so much fun, doesn't it? Guy starts talking about, and I'll give you an example. Guy starts talking about an affair. And you guys know, we can go to certain places. It can be a gas station or a sporting goods store, whatever it is. Three or four guys standing around talking. And you know what they're probably going to be talking about nine times out of ten. So you listen to a group of guys. Maybe you work with some. Guy starts talking about how he's fooling around, slipping around on his wife and getting away with it. He's got the best of both worlds. He's got the wife to go home to, and he's got this girl on the side. And all of that's going, sounds like so much fun. Sounds exciting. And I'm going home to my boring life, someone says. My boring life with this boring woman that I've been bored to death with for the last 20-whatever years. Love not the world. Don't be like the world. Because what God is saying is, if you love the world and you, you emulate the world, you act like the world, then you're going to get what the world gets. Dig down further into that guy's life. Maybe it's exciting today because he just started an affair. Down the road six months, check back with him. See how life is going. How's that working out for you? That's when they start coming to people like me. I need help. Don't love the world. Don't be like the world. Because when you do that, you stand in opposition to God. And when you are hostile before God, you are going to lose 100% of the time. Always. Notice verse 5. The Spirit that dwells in us. And here's 5 and 6 of those 6 terms. Lust. To envy. Now, there are two ways to take this verse, and, and chances are if you're sitting and reading another translation, you, you may even have spirit capitalized, and so it looks something like this. The spirit that dwells in us yearns for envy, yearns with jealousy, or something like that. I've read that translators, believe it or not, in a passage that's relatively simple to translate everywhere around it, I mean, all of the rest of the passage. James is not a hard book. But this verse. And this verse has given translators, commentators, etc., some of the most problems of any in the Bible, especially any in the New Testament. Because there are two roads to go here, and both are right. The Spirit, our Spirit, that's in me. My Spirit in me, lust to envy. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, that's dwelling in me, as I'm living like this, is yearning, wanting something different. So, is it Holy Spirit or our spirit? And the idea is, God has made both to inhabit the Christian. I have my spirit, and if I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, so that doesn't really help. One is not a wrong idea, but what is James talking about? Well, the context has to decide, and I will grant to anyone 
that even when you look at the context, both can fit. But I'll tell you what I believe is being said, and I'll tell you why. I believe James is still discussing our spirit. That's why I say the spirit within us. I mean my spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, who I hope is in me, and not Satan, who I know is in me. Not those spirits, but mine. The one I have the most choice about. The one that I have to deal with 24 hours a day. My spirit. And this is what I believe he is saying. The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Well, number five, if I can get it to come up here. Yeah, there we go. Number five, this word means to long for, to strain after. It's the idea of having an intense craving for something. Go back to what he's saying here. What do you really deep down inside? I don't care where you are in life. I don't care if you're sitting here and your life is filled with problems or if you're sitting here and you've got a relatively settled life. Deep down inside, what do you really, really want? That's what we're talking about here. In the deepest recesses of my my mind and my heart, what do I want out of life? And I think most people, most people, regardless of the disaster they may have made of their life, most people want better. They want those ideals that God presents in the Bible. You know, home and family and loving children and loving parents and good brothers and sisters that are there for you, friends that you can call on in the middle of the night, they'll do anything for you. We, most of us want that. We want a satisfying job and we want a paycheck that, I don't have to be the richest guy in the world, but I want a paycheck that gets what I need. I don't want to worry about money. Most of us want basically the same thing. And so, the idea in this passage is, I intensely crave and I move towards something. Now, stay with me for a moment. That's the word to or with in those two translations. My craving, my intense craving is moving me to something, but what is it moving me to? Well, that's our last word. And the word, interestingly enough, and this is why I believe it's the the word, I mean, why I believe it's our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Because the word is akin to a word for corrupt, waste away, rot is the idea. It's a strong feeling, and understand the point here. It's a strong feeling that sours. Well, wait a minute, what does that mean? It means that I want the ideal. I crave it, I need it, I have to have the good everything. But because of the way I live... Because of the way I waste, because of the way I destroy what I've been blessed with, that feeling begins to sour into jealousy, envy, and it embitters me. And so I may start out in my 20s and I have all these ideals about the way I want life to go, and by the time I'm my age, my 50s, 60 is around the corner, And I'm looking at life and I'm looking at what I've got and what I didn't get and what I don't have. And I look around me and I see somebody else with it. That feeling of really wanting it, driving me to go after it, starts souring. The more I think about what I don't have, the more bitter I become. And as I become more and more bitter, 
then I start becoming, you know, the skeptic. I start becoming the person that nothing is good. And I begin to wear the sour look on my face. And when people look at me, they talk about someone who's really not happy in life. And I will tell you about it if you'll listen. And I'll tell you about everything that went wrong with my husband, my wife, my children, my friends, my church brothers and sisters. I'll tell you about how lousy my job, I'll tell you about how I wasted my life in my job. I'll tell you about how I don't get paid what I deserve. I will tell you about how lousy life is, and if you will listen long enough, I will try to create the same hopelessness in you that is in me. Spirit within us. Now a person says, wow, that's bad. You're right. But there is the tendency within any of us to be just like that. You don't have to be. We're warned not to be. We're warned to check ourselves, would be the modern language, when you feel things going that way. But that's what can happen. Let me summarize with a statement. The basic idea of James 4, verses 1 through 5, is that most people, even Christians, have a lot of problems. They have drama. They have strife. They even have outright wars with people in their lives. And they want to have better. They really do. But they don't require it, demand it of themselves, so they cannot obtain it from God. They often miss blessings. Where God would grant some request to them for something in life. They often miss that from the Lord because of their motives. The way they would use what they are given. So God says no. They ought to rather emulate, act like the world with what they've been given by God. Scripture aptly and abundantly describes the spirit within us. That intense craving of what's better in life even as we, through the way we live, move toward, closer to that embittered jealousy of what's better while wasting the opportunities we have. And that's something we all need to think about. I know that it is something I have to think about every day. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you would confess your belief in Him today, if you will repent, that is, be willing to change your life, to live your life for the Lord, if you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins, you will be a Christian. And you can begin a life of making everything better, of living your life like the Lord would have you live. Maybe you're here today and you're looking at your life and you say, you know, Michael, I recognize some of those tendencies in myself. I need to check myself. I need to put some of that behind me. And I need to ask for God's help in doing it. 